Hello there. This is Drew, resident of the Montevilla neighbor- neighborhood and a big fan of the Academy Theater here, as always, with Doorman, the person who spearheads revival programming at Academy. What's up? Hey, Drew. It's it's actually our 10th episode. I was counting them earlier, and I just wanted to share that with you. It's, it's you know, it's we've been doing this for a little while. Double digits. I know. It's a milestone. It's, yeah, and we're going through December today. December 2023 has six movies that we're going to go through over three weeks. Um, and this is a good example of just talking a little bit about how we come up with the programming, how we structure things. You know, this this month is just split right down the middle. We got three movies that are going to be winter westerns, and those are movies that I have picked and sequenced, and we'll go over those individually, and you can see how they contrast, and those are juxtaposed against three holiday films, Um, and I'm proud to say that we're covering a range of holidays, not just Xmas. Um, Excellent. Yeah, and we'll get into that specifically, but those are programmed by Hannah, our general manager, in conjunction with... Uh, members of the staff so you know we have uh, some monthly series like the deep cut series this month Um, that's programmed by myself Um, and all the other titles really just have a you know authorship is a little dubious because it's just a a range of input that we get across from people talking to people fans customers you know anybody um, because we all love movies I think especially with um, December and with the holiday programming it's very personally subjective what people's like individual holiday movies are it might be the subgenre of like um christmas horror it might be you know for me gremlins it might be um polarizingly enough die hard for some i don't think that's polarizing but um so you could have action so i'm really excited to hear about this kind of just winter themed programming just kind of set like uh an environmental vibe but trying to get everyone to agree on like what their what type of movies they watch for Christmas or other holidays that's yeah that's got to be a true like group effort yep and just programming wise last time we talked we talked about that pivot point from October to November and how much i love going from horror to noir this pivot point's a little different but it is very stark as well when we go from November movies to December, to me, it's much more contrasting than when we go from December to January. I really think of this as a big seasonal shift. There's movies that I keep on my winter list that I've been waiting to pull out, have been campaigning for for years. And I think that this spread that we have here is another really good mix of classics that people will be familiar with and some movies that do not get played. Hmm. So we're going to go through them each. But um, just in general, I'm just really happy about how it all came together this month. Yeah, and it's um dark for like eighteen hours a day now. So great yes. to be at the at the theater. It doesn't matter whether you're inside, outside. It's cloudy, rainy, and uh... <laughs> and it's time to get cozy. Yeah, yeah, and we got some cozy movies to talk about. So let's stop talking about what we're going to talk sure. about. And just go through them. All right. So week one, we got December eighth through the fourteenth. This is a big one. This is I've been wanting to play this movie ever since I started at the academy. Very, very proud to announce we have the first movie in our Winter Western series from 1971, Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller. 
It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man. It's hard to hold the hand of anyone who's reaching for the sky just to surrender. Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender. Cold and austere. The town of Presbyterian Church is just another small mining fixture in the turn of the century Pacific Northwest, and a perfect place for John Q. McCabe, Warren Beatty, and Constance Miller, Julie Christie, to bring a touch of civilization, quote-unquote. McCabe is a small-time gambler who dreams of running a big-time bordello. Miss Miller is a madam from Seattle who arrives to make that dream come true. As these two newcomers join forces to provide the miners with a superior kind of whorehouse experience, the appearance of representatives from a powerful mining company with interests of their own threatens to be the undoing of their plans. With its fascinating, flawed characters, evocative cinematography by the great Vilmo Sigmund, and the haunting use of Leonard Cohen songs, McCabe and Mrs. Miller brilliantly deglamorized and revitalized the most American of genres. Okay, yeah, this does sound like a, an, an unusual premise for a Western. It's not like um guy comes into a corrupt town and, and uh, <laughs> establishes order. It's much more complicated than that, it sounds like. Absolutely. So we're starting out this Western series in a on untraditional way. We're going to start with a revisionist Western. And a lot of people talk about Westerns having kind of two eras. I don't know how familiar you are with Westerns, but basically for those of uh, our listeners who may not be, because I do believe that the Western is a genre that of all, all genres of films deserves to have more respect than it has given in a modern context. And so consequently, I, a lot of people talk about Westerns as having two main big eras. There's the golden age of Westerns, approximately 1939 to 1962, and then the revisionist wave of Westerns, which is anything really after the Wild Bunch, but personally I can, I characterize some of the spaghetti Westerns as revisionists. But this right. is after the Wild Bunch, which is 1969, and everything after the Wild Bunch just gets really real. So they are again deglamorizing in that description. They're they're making everything as raw and as true to the period as they can, um, and everything is is really on display for social commentary. Um, so I'm really excited about this um, movie because it, we're starting off with the revisionist western here. We're starting off with the raw reality that's being portrayed here. And the second movie, we'll see. We'll go into that golden age, and I'll expose. Uh, what I think to be is a movie that really deserves some more light. But just focusing right now on McCabe yeah. and Mrs. Miller, this is a movie that I think is one of the best movies of all time. And I, I'm oh, not well. going to say that about every yeah. movie, and I, I'm not going to say masterpiece over and over again throughout this episode. But this this really is a masterpiece. If, if somebody's going to see one movie this month, make sure you see McCabe and Mrs. Miller. We got a 4K restoration. It's going to look beautiful. It's going to sound beautiful on our big screen. Okay, well, that is like enough motivation for for me because I would say I do fall into that. Well, I don't disrespect Westerns in any way. 
it was tough for me as a kid. Um, like a lot of people, probably their dad was uh, or whoever in their life is exposing them to movies. Sure, yeah. My dad wanted to watch a lot of Westerns. I don't know what, I don't want to say turned me off aside from just being an ignorant kid, but like I was always super into like the dumb action movies and the yeah. later, like, you know, um, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, like yep. <laughs> bad um fun action movies westerns i it was probably just the pacing or whatever at the at the age i was at to where i never it never hooked me as a kid and then as an adult you know i've been slow to get back around to that um genre certainly is like a pillar of american cinema especially american character archetypes are often drawn from that genre um, the Italian horror movies that I like are there's a lot of overlap stylistically and in, in um in the creative talent involved in some of those productions. The score, you know, can often um parallel some of the genres I love. So I'm sure this will be a very accessible to my taste now, um, even more so than some of the the first wave of westerns that you were describing. Yeah, and I'm right there with you, Drew. When I first started at the Academy, I was not a fan of Westerns. I, I would make fun of them. I would op openly say how much I didn't like Westerns. And it really just uh, was an opportunity for some of the older staff members at the time to educate me and show me, be like, hey, go watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller and tell me you don't think that's a masterpiece. Right. So uh, I got proved wrong. And yeah. I'm really excited to get to play some of these movies that really don't get played and to put this series in a context for people to get to explore and appreciate these movies in a specific sequence. So with this movie, I'm not going to give too much of the plot away. I think the description gave it, you know, it's really a, it's a double character study of Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, who were super big stars at the time. Um, and they are basically coming together to exploit people and forming some sort of bond which gets examined in addition to this not just being a character study but really a society study and the really fascinating thing is it takes place in the pacific northwest oh wow yeah and once again yeah filmed up in canada but um both of these first two westerns take place um uh, the first one in the pacific northwest and then in the uh, for the second film we're going to go beyond the Pacific Northwest, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. But I just want to, I don't want to ruin the experience of going into this movie, and I don't want to overhype it, even though I've overhyped it. Um, <laughs> but I do want to just share the very first line of oh, this movie, okay. which seems... is a Leonard Cohen lyric. Okay. So the first shot is um, just music and Warren Beatty on a horse. Um, and the lyrics are It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said that they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. So just with that line, Robert Altman, in just about five seconds, just destroyed pretty much every Western thing that came before it and just sucks you right down into the heart of what is going to become just a uh, extremely uh, intense journey. Um, so it's beautiful in many different ways, and it's funny. You know, he, this is right after MASH, so he's got some comedic flair mm -hmm. um, coming uh, from that. But uh, in general, this is sort of a movie about the end of the West. 
juxtaposed against McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, we have our first holiday film, uh, the deliciously campy B-movie, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians from 1964. Santa sets up a fantastic automatic toy factory on Mars. The Martian leader battles the wicked Bodar in a desperate effort to save Santa, the wise man of Mars. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians tells the story of the depressed children of Mars who can only be brought out of their funk through the jolly cheer of old Saint Nick. So the Martian leaders travel to Earth and kidnap two local kids, one played by eight-year-old Pia Zadora and Kris Kringle himself. Brought back to the Red Planet, they are forcibly installed in a factory to make toys. But you can't manufacture happiness with Santa having to teach his alien overseers the true meaning of Christmas. Filled with kitschy set design, outrageous costumes, and amiable acting, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is nonstop fun and is worthy of its status as a holiday staple. So first little note there, I would say... um... I wasn't sure how these were going to be staggered. So I do like that basically the three films from each side are, are running in sequence over the course of the months. Yeah. Over the course of the month. So yeah. You have so one we holiday have option and one Western option. Every week. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And so it, it pairs well. And I think that's kind of our signature contrast right now. You know, it really just warmed my heart over Thanksgiving to see Chicken Run up on the marquee right next to Paul Schrader's Hardcore. <laughs> you know, I just love that. And right now we're just going, we're, we, that was the last revival series week. And right now we're just picking up right after that with McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Santa Claus conquers the Martians. Yeah, and I I think I'm aware of this movie from YouTube clips. Yeah. Um but I'm curious for, about its like cult awareness or right. how you came across it or yeah, just kind of like where it fits into this like classic Chris. I mean, it seems too weird to be true. Right. Like yeah. so it's not like a later intentionally camp i mean i I don't even know like how does it fit into the historical context of making like real like is this like a ed wood type b movie i was gonna start with saying this is post plan nine so this is almost the end of that era of sci-fi horror low budget films uh you know that sort of came out of the atomic age sci-fi movies after world war ii so we're at 64 we're about to have a big psychedelic shift Uh with kubrick's 2001 and just uh, a really hard turn in the sci-fi world so this is the end of that era but it fits right in and um you know i think most people have this movie on their radar from mystery science uh 3000 uh which is where uh, my uh, manager hannah grew up on mystery science she told me that she just really loved it and um, but for me personally, it got on my radar because we have a big poster of it upstairs in uh, one of the projection booths at the theater um, from when we played it at the Academy many, 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 hmm. many years ago. So this movie doesn't get played in town like ever. And um, the rights were really tricky to fall. You know, I kept uh, pushing Hannah to bail on it. Come on, just don't just pick something else. And stuff. And she's like, no, we're holding on. We're holding out for Santa Claus <laughs> Conquers the Martians. And when it came through and we all worked out all the logistical details, it was a big like, yay. Um, and 
So this is a fun movie for all ages. Uh, this is a very lighthearted, silly affair. Um, but it's taken, you know, it's it's taken seriously like an Ed Wood film is taken seriously on the on the surface level of the movie. So um, the Martians are hilarious. Um, you know, they're just guys in green suits uh, with green face makeup with weird tubes coming out of their sure, heads. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's got a lot of charm to it um, in a nostalgia kind of way. Um, and also... Uh, it's just uh, one that is a rare treat for people. Hmm. Have you seen the mystery science theater presentation of it? You know, it's been so long since I watched those. Yes. Um, Same. I, I that have, is very you could put it on and too. then I would be able to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just been a long time since I mystery science, you know, 3000. Yeah. Um, all right. So, that one is pretty straightforward. I don't think we have a whole lot more to say about that other than people should really take advantage of it because who knows when it'll come again. Um, so our second week in December uh, is December 15th through the 21st, and uh, we're going with the deep cut pick is the second uh, movie in our winter western series uh, from Anthony Mann. It's 1954's The Far Country. Starring James Stewart, who learned in bullets and blood that no man can live for himself alone. Ruth Roman, who knew men and how to use them. Corinne Calvay, wiser than her years. And Walter Brennan and John McIntyre in the epic saga of a far frontier, excitingly photographed on location amid the scenic grandeur of Canada's northern mountains. An archetypal example of its genre The Far Country is one of the five superb westerns that screen legend Jimmy Stewart, Vertigo, Bend of the River, made with acclaimed Hollywood auteur Anthony Mann. This film tells the story of Jeff Webster and his sidekick Ben Tatum, two stoic adventurers who figure to get rich quick by driving cattle from Wyoming to the far reaches of the Yukon Territory in the town of Dawson, where provisions go for incredible prices. Along the way, they become caught up in a conflict with self-appointed lawman and corrupt judge played by John McIntyre from Psycho. An epic saga set during the heady times of the Klondike Gold Rush, the far country captures the scenic grandeur of northern Canada's icy glaciers and the snow-swept mountains in vivid technicolor, and man's direction expertly steers the film to an unorthodox yet thrilling all guns ablazing finale. All right. I mean, shockingly, I'm sure uh, this one is uh, one of these days we're going to get to a deep cut where <laughs> it's it's somewhat um, on my radar. But this one, yeah, um, I don't really know much about the filmmaker, uh, the director. So Anthony Mann is probably most known uh, today for his early film noirs. Uh uh, T-Men and Raw Deal are hmm. some of the bigger ones. Um, and those are low-budget affairs. He really cut his teeth making them. Um, and then after that, he graduated to the sort of second phase of his career, which are these big Technicolor Westerns, um, the most famous of which is the first collaboration with James Stewart's called Winchester 73. And everyone loves that movie. It's a great movie. Um it exposed people for the first time to dark Jimmy Stewart. So Ah. Jimmy Stewart has this reputation, you know, Hitchcock, it's a wonderful life as being kind of a goody two shoes, wholesome guy, Sure, but not when he was with Anthony Mann. 
So in Anthony Mann, he does these series of five westerns, um, and the first three of which uh, I consider to be um, a, a trilogy with Borden Chase. And Borden Chase is the great western writer who broke on the scene in 1949 with Howard Hawks's Red River, one of the greatest westerns of all time uh, with John Wayne. And I always tell people to watch that and Rio Bravo um, when they say, oh, I don't really get the whole John Wayne thing. Um, to me, those are two amazing movies, and people mostly get pointed to The Searchers, and I always point people, no, go to Red River. And the reason I think that it's great is not just John Wayne, though, or Howard Hawks, it's Borden Chase's story. Hmm. So after he gets the big success of Red River, he teams up with Anthony Mann for Winchester 73, and they didn't think this was going to be a big hit, but it was a colossal smash. So much so that they were going to keep that team together, and they made one of my favorite westerns of all time, the second one in their their series, uh, Bend of the River, which I played a couple years ago and is a Portland set uh, Technicolor Western. It's beautiful Oregon landscape scenery. Um, And The Far Country, this movie I'm playing, is a companion piece to Bend of the River. It is the winter version. And it is kind of the last movie that James Stewart, Anthony Mann, and Borden Chase all made together with Hmm. that set. They they make a few westerns after that, but without Board and Chase and the that flair, that edge that they had, and they started with Winchester seventy three, kind of fades away without Board and Chase. Um, so this is set um, at the very first scene is set in Seattle, and then they leave the Pacific Northwest for Canada. So it's a, again, it's continuing that legacy. And for me, that's I'm using McCabe and Mrs. Miller as we're setting up. Okay, we're in Washington, and now afterwards we're going north. We're right. getting cozier. We're going even further beyond to the far yeah. country. Well, I mean, there's nowhere further than that we can go north, or or is there later? We'll I, see. Ex- <laughs> well, that's the, exactly where do we go from there? But uh, so. In the far country, just the general gist of the story. The description's good, but just I think what makes this movie so amazing is, so in the golden age of Westerns, I think a thing that gets a lot of people is they don't have a lot of sex and gore. They don't have a lot of sex and violence. So within those limitations, what do you get? If you don't have sex and violence, what is there? And so I always think of these Westerns as a chess game. So what do you get? You get strategy, you get drama, and you get skill. Hmm. And so what are you seeing? And you also get beautiful landscape. Let's put that in there. But so as a chess game, basically you have these predictable characters that all move in predictable ways. But every director has their own landscape board their own style of moving these chess players and it's all about the journey to get to checkmate it's not about the checkmate itself it's all about the process and way that these predictable characters all kind of so the anthony mann western he's all james stewart's always got a sidekick and in this case it's not just any sidekick it's walter brennan it's the best sidekick you could possibly have and this is an a western so he's got a huge budget so they're just they're going crazy with all the uh side people if you will, like any western you like once upon a time in the west jack elam is in here so it's a great who's who of the western era um and additionally um you're getting this beautiful landscape photography right so now in terms of the plot of this movie basically what you get is him leaving seattle at the beginning 
and trying to get these cattle as far as he can into the city of Dawson. And he's getting stopped along the way by this corrupt judge who I mentioned. His name is um, Gannon, and uh, he's played amazingly by John McIntyre. And John McIntyre really didn't get a lot of leading roles. Um, He's in Psycho. He's in Asphalt Jungle. He's in Winchester 73. You'd recognize his face. But he's one of those characters that when he finally got a part, he seized it. And he really makes, he steals the show from James Stewart um, hmm. as the the corrupt judge. And there's a wonderful scene where he presides his court session in a bar. And it's just great to see how it goes down and how the, the sort of rugged law of uh, the, the Western frontier there. I Yeah, I appreciate the kind of um, lens or framework of the chess analogy to, to watch these movies through. Certainly, you can think of that in terms of like the interpersonal dynamics, but you also mentioned just the use of setting and landscape. And so kind of thinking about how these, if you zoom out into like an omniscient viewpoint and you're thinking about how these people are moving around the the setting and then you zoom in to like a courtroom, barroom proceeding, then you can, that's a really interesting viewpoint to have. Um, and the only other thing that I'm always reminded of when you describe things like this is just the difference between, you know, if you're, if you're struggling to access any of these genres that aren't already in your wheelhouse, like, like you said, when you got to the theater, it helps to have people pushing you, but it also helps to have, um, the theatrical experience always. I and mean, this is a just, big Technicolor yeah. Western. So right. they're taking full advantage of the color, the big wide lenses that they use here. So it's really interesting, going to be interesting to see people, ju- uh, com- uh, it's going to be really interesting to see people compare McCabe and Mrs. Miller and the the wonderful cinematography that Vilma Sigmund, Vilma yeah. Sigmund's there again from Blowout, Deliverance. So he's doing something completely different than what's happening in this golden age epic. Right. I, this this might be a dumb question, but yeah. I don't know about you. I mean, I almost never regret the theatrical experience. If I, if I put on a movie at home and it's bad and I get distracted and I don't give it my full attention, that can seem like a waste of time. But I just don't really have that experience when I go to the theater. Like yeah. you're locked in. It's going to be the, the something about the crowd reaction or your environment reaction, like having to make an effort to go, it's always a meaningful experience. And I'm not even like hedging of like saying if this movie isn't for you, I just mean like, yeah, it's a perfect opportunity to go out of your comfort zone to see some of these movies. And I'm kind of like, I guess giving myself a pep talk. Yeah. And this (laughs) one's so super cozy. Yeah. And it is really the first big snowy Western. So just if we're doing a winter Western series, and I played Bend of the River, and when I played that, I was super surprised. That's an obscure Western too. But since it's set in Portland, people came out for it, and they were really into it. And I was really motivated to do more of these uh, Westerns. Uh, and a lot of people say that was one of the best movies that, they, that I've shown them. Uh, so it, it's... It's interesting. It definitely will strike a chord with some people. But I also want to just tell people that Jimmy Stewart, bad Jimmy Stewart, 
is really fun to watch. Hmm. So if you're used to seeing Jimmy Stewart be a similar, a wholesome guy, watching him not do that is just really it aged well. <laughs> I mean, everyone, including myself, just this past past weekend, um, will be watching <laughs> "It's a Wonderful Life" this month at some point in some amount of you know uh, to some degree, and so having it comparing it against that iconic um, holiday performance. That's like, you know, the totally the universal Christmas movie. So. And I was really surprised to learn that when It's a Wonderful Life came out, it was a flop. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. I didn't know anything about its yeah. reception at the time. When The Far Country came out, it was a smash. Oh, <laughs> funny how the, these things change in stature over time. But Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so that is the deep cut pick, Far Country. Um, and that is going to be uh, festively juxtaposed against our second holiday film. It's Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights from 2002. Get ready for Adam Sandler. I'll do it all night long. He's rude. Please excuse me while I go take shower. He's crude. Oh, shut up. He's animated. Oh, my. He brought you Happy Gilmore. <laughs> Waterboy and Big Daddy. Now, Adam Sandler's entering a whole new world. Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights. You've never seen Adam like this. Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights is a hilarious animated holiday fable. It's also a musical featuring star voices of John Lovitz and Rob Schneider. That really paints a picture there. <laughs> when extremely disgruntled small town guy Davy Stone, voiced by Sandler, faces another holiday season in his New England hometown, he does what he always does. He screws up big and lands in jail. Davy's old basketball referee Whitey bails him out with the bright idea of putting Davy to work doing community service. But Davy turns his sentence into a daily disaster for Whitey and the holy town and the whole town. After a few surprises, including the mysterious reason for Davy's bad attitude and the reappearance of childhood sweetheart, Davy might find a reason to change his ways. Aha. Uh-huh. That's the key to a lot of holiday movies. Um, the Scrooged lesson type of um, type of character arc. This, I mean, I I kind of got hung up on the you've never seen him like this before line because I I guess that just refers to he's animated. Yes. Um, <laughs> because this 2002, I mean, I graduated high school 2002. Yeah. Adam Sandler, the, I guess it was mid 90s or late 90s when yeah. he was breaking out on SNL, but yep. he was breaking out in comedy movies, Happy Gilmore, Waterboy. I mean, yep. that was just like right back to my high school yeah. experience. Oh man, Waterboy was so big. Yeah. That yeah. was such a big movie. Yeah. I mean, all those movies were huge comedy hits that kind of defined the genre for me at that age. Um he, like there was probably no bigger comedy star than him um for me in that um middle and high school uh window. And I think Hannah is a big fan of that period. So right. she was she's an Adam Sandler's fan. Um uh, what's it called? She played the Hanukkah SNL song for it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is and this is a Hanukkah movie. Yes. So we have not just um, Christmas movie after Christmas movie after Christmas movie. We're excited to bring a different holiday to the holiday tradition. Um, and this, but this is a familiar uh, plot 
uh, archetype of the redemption, and this is a comedy, so don't take the plot super seriously. <laughs> this is an Adam Sandler comedy that's animated, um, and Hannah's a big animation fan, and she wanted me to make sure I shared with you that um, the animators for this movie um, actually worked on uh, Iron Giant. So it's that oh, wow. same style that I feel like is pretty um, well-loved from Iron Giant. Uh, I guess they got fired from the studio. I didn't get super deep into um, how that came to be, but um, it's that same style um, from Iron Giant. Wow. Yeah. Starring Vin Diesel. So, um, you know, I think for people looking for uh, more kid friendly holiday films, gear more towards Santa Claus uh, Conquers the Martians. This is uh, a little bit aimed towards a, a, an older audience, but it isn't super crazy or anything, but some of the humor involved is a little raunchier um, right. than uh, maybe ki- young kids um, should see. Um, but yeah, I think that's a pretty straightforward one. I don't, I don't know if we need to spoil, we're not going to spoil anything for people with that, but if you want to come for some laughs, uh, come check out Eight Crazy Nights, another rare one that doesn't get played very much. All right, so our third week is December 22nd through the 28th. We have the third and final film in our Winter Western series. And um, I'm really excited for this one because we're getting the return of 35mm to the Academy for Christmas. So um, uh, without further ado, we have Quentin Tarantino's eighth film. It's The Hateful Eight from 2015. Hear this. I'm taking this woman to hang. Rewards ten thousand dollars. That money's mine, boys. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hold on. You think I'm in cahoots with that fella or her? That's my problem, boy. I don't know. One of them fellas will kill everybody in here. Now we're talking. Let's slow it down. Let's slow it way down. Set six or eight or 12 years after the Civil War, a stagecoach hurtles through the wintry Wyoming landscape. The passengers, bounty hunter John Ruth, Kurt Russell from Used Cars, The Thing, Breakdown, and his fugitive, Daisy Domergue, Jennifer Jason Lee from Backdraft, race towards the town of Red Rock where Ruth known in these parts as the hangman, will bring Domergue to justice. Along the road, they encounter two strangers, uh, Major Marquis Warren and Samuel L. Jackson, snakes on a plane, a black former Union soldier turned infamous bounty hunter, and Chris Menix, a former Southern renegade who claims to be the town's new sheriff. Losing their lead on the storm, Ruth Domergue, Warren, and Mannix seek refuge at Minnie's Haberdashery, a stagecoach stopover on a mountain pass. When they arrive at Minnie's, they are greeted not by the proprietor, but by four unfamiliar faces. Bob, who's taking care of Minnie's while she's visiting her mother, is holed up with Oswaldo Mowbray, Tim Roth, the hangman of Red Rock, and cowpuncher Joe Gage, Michael Madsen from Free Willy, and Confederate General Sanford Smithers, Bruce Dern from Silent Running. As the storm overtakes the mountainside stopover, our eight travelers come to learn that they might not make it to Red Rock after all. Okay, so 
the first thing that comes to mind for this is it's probably the only Tarantino movie I haven't rewatched since it yeah. was since I saw it in theaters. Yeah. Um, it's I've heard a lot such, of people say that. Yeah, yeah. It's such a theatrical experience. It, um, I remember it having an intervention, uh, intervention, an intermission. Yep. That's um, the roadshow version. Yeah. And I'm still waiting on confirmation whether the print will be the general release or the roadshow. Yeah. Um, I've requested the roadshow, but I think that either would be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've been reluctant to. I know that they were even talking about like re-editing it and releasing it in chapters. Or Tarantino has talked about that. I don't know if that ever yeah. happens, but like I've just been reluctant to rewatch it at home. So not since you know the Boogeyman played on thirty-five millimeter at yeah. Academy have I gotten a chance to see another movie on film there. Um, that was the last one that played. <laughs> and this is going to be very different. I'm, I'm hoping that you get to see a ch- see this print because this is going to be a very different experience because The Boogeyman is a print that I own. Uh-huh. Um, and it is a rough-shaped print. It's a horror movie. You know, It, it, it is what it is. Um, this is not. This is going to be a proper print from a, stu- a studio distributor. It's going to look really good. So um, I'll be updating people as I build it um, yeah. to tell people the condition I'll, I'll to let you know how good it looks and i'm sure but it's sure it's going to be a really amazing experience well this is a really unusual case of a movie made in the last you know 10 years that was still shot on film and able that you're actually able to get a studio distributed version on film there just aren't many cases of that anymore so like that's a unique experience for you, I'm sure, just being able to request that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it wasn't just shot on any film. It was shot on shot on Ultra Panavision right. 65 millimeter and then printed in 70 millimeter prints. So you're getting these really wide lenses. I'm sure everyone's familiar. You know, it, it was a huge smash when it came out. But just uh, come, it'll be a very Tarantino Christmas. And the reason I really love this movie is because of the story, but also the cast. It is yep. one of my favorite casts of any of his movies. You know, if, if you just say Kurt Russell in the snow, I'm in. Yes. You know, that's, yes. all, that's all I need, really. Yeah. But... That's not all we get. We also get Michael Madsen, you know, the dad from Free Willy. Yes. Uh, and we're also getting <laughs> Bruce Dern, Laura Dern's dad. Yeah, the dad from you know? Laura Dern. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Jennifer Jason Lee. So this is a power, powerhouse cast yep. for the ages there's, coming together. There's also a real um, parlor trick, for lack of a better term, that this movie pulls off where it is so cinematic and so, um, you know, like, focused on these wide outdoor landscape shots to only then for a portion of the movie confine you to a smaller setting when it really turns into kind of a, you know, character mystery drama. Like, you, you know, at that point it almost becomes, this movie defied my expectations when it came out. And like I said, it's been so long since I've seen it to where I'll almost be going in. It'll be really interesting to see how much I remember of of the the way that the characters, are, the cast is used to incredible effect because you have histories with these people, maybe expectations that you're bringing to it. Um, Tarantino, of course, always does this in, in terms of like casting people that he has really strong relationships watching. And so you're projecting all of that on the characters and that can be subverted 
in interesting ways and and you just see them all confined um in what like in a film that takes you on this journey from the middle of Wyoming to a tiny cabin or a tiny, you know, parlor yep. is, is, is a real, um, kind of memorable experience to go on. And I'm really programming this in a specific sequence with the other Westerns. So, you know, we started with McCabe, the big revisionist Western, and then we went to a deep cut of a golden age Western that doesn't get played very much. And seeing those movies before hateful eight, I think it'll bring a deeper awareness of what exactly Tarantino is doing. Cause there's a lot of violence up front in hateful eight and throughout the movie. Um, and seeing the far country, which has very muted violence or a different type of action um, uh, before, I think is really going to show how how different this type of Western is and where it came from, you know. And, and we talked about the progression, you know. We start out in the Pacific Northwest. We go up to Alaska in the far country. Um, and now, where are we going? We're just going into a blizzard. Yeah. We're just going, we're going back <laughs> down to Wyoming, but not really. Really, we're just going buried deep, face deep in the snow. Kurt Russell doesn't mind a cold climate. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that is a good wrap on Hateful Eight, but don't miss this on 35 millimeter. Tickets will be on sale very, very soon. Um, and, and advanced tickets are highly recommended. So, quick get, question there. Um, yeah. For Boogeyman, you had two different versions playing. Yeah. The, the only version that will be playing here will be the 35. Correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, all show times will be for. Yep. And we might not play it 14 times. We might do some more selective just because of its length. Right. Um, we're still working on the schedule. That should come out in just a, a day or two. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so that's The Hateful Eight. And uh, now we'll go to our last holiday film for Christmas, a movie that probably needs no introduction <laughs> because it is uh, you know, gleefully landed into the holiday canon in recent times. Uh, it's 2003's Elf, starring Will Ferrell. It's Christmas. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. I don't sing. Discover your inner elf. You better watch out. Critics are raving. Elf is Miracle on 34th Street meets It's a Wonderful Life. Elf, rated PG, now playing. Once upon a Christmas Eve, an orphan baby crawled into Santa's bags of gifts and was taken to the North Pole. Raised by Papa Elf, Buddy, Will Ferrell comes to realize he doesn't fit in with the other elves. Determined to find a place where he belongs, Buddy searches for his real dad in New York City. In the Big Apple, Buddy finds out why his dad is on the naughty list. But most importantly, he sees the world is seriously lacking in Christmas spirit, which causes Santa all kinds of problems. So with the help of a beautiful department store elf, Zoe Deschanel, Buddy tries to teach his dad and the world the true meaning of Christmas spirit and to prove to everyone that Santa really exists. Okay. All right. Yeah. So when did this happen? I mean, this is 2003. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I mean the, the modern canonization of this as like the definitive Christmas movie, this is our <laughs> its 20th anniversary. And I don't mean this as a negative. It just like, it just snuck up on me. Like all yeah. of a sudden, maybe people that were like a few years younger than me, like had yeah. just grown up on this and 
all of a sudden it's just kind of like the definitive Christmas movie of of the last 20 years I'd say um for you know like in terms of broad you know family all all quadrant appeal I I, I hope it's surpassed like the Tim Allen Santa Claus movies yeah, and, totally. and some of the you know even even um it's definitely eclipsed a lot of the 90s stuff. yeah even the Arnold what's the Arnold jingle, jingle all the way yeah. like I have some nostalgia for those but they weren't great this is just a, a crowd pleaser, and again, I don't mean that in yeah. a, as a pejorative, but on that note, because it snuck up on me and I didn't see it when it came out in theaters, I've never yeah. seen it in the theater. Yeah. Um. So that that could totally change kind of perspective. Change yeah. my perspective. Right now, it's like comfort viewing that I always watch in snippets. Sure. But like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about you, like. It, it just kind of snuck up on me that this is such a beloved movie. Yeah, I've kind of watched this movie become a classic, sort of similar to McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where I've seen this movie go from being um, an ups- I've seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller go from being a pretty obscure movie to getting played around town a good deal now, which is really amazing to see. Same with Elf. I, I've seen this movie catch on in the last 10 years. You know, Die Hard is another one that this is now a bona fide Christmas classic movie. Yep. You know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. So we have a new pantheon here of uh, Christmas movies, and Elf is right up there with Christmas Story. Yeah. Yeah. And like we talked about with Sandler, obviously Will Ferrell right in the next wave of of comedy was one of the biggest comedy stars of kind of my young adult life. Yeah. And this so, is right after Zoolander. Yeah. I mean, this is like peak Ferrell here. Yeah, exactly. And then Zoe Deschanel is kind of more of like an indie um, darling for me yeah. with it's not that indie now, but 500 Days of Summer was a yeah. really, you know, um, kind of uh, exciting movie for me when it came out because it was so stylized. And then, you know, before New Girl made her kind of a more mainstream star, sure, she was really an interesting pairing with him in this movie because of her quirky kind of now, which almost become a, a trope that she defined. Sure. Like, it hadn't really seen a counter... Um, you know, romantic interest or, or just kind of, um, second, um, foil for a character like Farrell's like her. Yeah. And we also have James Caan yep. in here, rest in peace. So it's a, it's a, it's a strong cast for sure. And when I was looking into the movie, you know, this might play a role into why it's had so much staying power, but I was surprised to learn that similar to maybe when Harry met Sally, this movie was in development. It was a script that was written in the early nineties and it took about 10, 12 years before it really came to full fruition. Hmm. So it was workshop for quite a while. Um, and then finally, uh, undertaken by John Favreau, who I wasn't super familiar with, but just seeing his face, I was like, Oh my God, it's gutter. From PCU. I don't know if you know that comedy movie, but um, it's a Jeremy Piven 90s comedy. But I grew up on that. And, you know, I've just always remembered this scene with Gutter because he's um, he's wearing uh, a T-shirt with a band on it and he's going to see that band. And Jeremy Piven's like, don't be that guy. (laughs) Don't be the guy. And it's always been a thing that um, we just bring up in my house of just, you know, if you're going to a show, don't wear that, the actual band you're going to see at the show. Right. Don't be that guy. It's so funny that, um, 
this is so doorman of you that I'm not surprised that you don't know him from his, you know, insanely successful career directing Marvel movies, starting yeah, with Iron Man. Totally. Um, but Swingers is yeah. like, you know, this directorial debut, I think, and breakout kind of like creative, um, you know, effort as as an actor. And, and so that Vince Vaughn um, sort of just kind of like early 90s indie yeah sensibility totally um is is my entry point for sure to, yeah. to him but pcu is uh he'll always like, be guttered yeah that's, that's that's just funny uh no look i'd like to help you out but we're cutting it on my nap time as it is but the good news is like i just the guy for the job Tom man, here's a pre-frost. I told him you show him around. Hi. No can do. Won't got can or won't. Can't, man. It's grunge night. Vienna house. The Merkins are opening for Frog and Toad, our friends. I got to psych up for the show. Frog and Toad, our friends. That's what the guy from The Clash, right? The, the Clash. I don't know if you're aware of this, Gutter, but there actually was music recorded before 1989. Nice. Um, well... I, I know. I don't know what we could possibly say about Elf to like sway someone one direction or the other. So it's just cool that that's going to be. Um, I'm curious on the timing of the calendar here. So, um, what is what is this? What are the dates of this last week? The dates of this last week are December 22nd to uh, December 28th. Okay, cool. So this will be playing the week of Christmas. Yep, alongside Hateful Eight on yeah. 35 millimeter. Yeah. Well, that's super super cool. Um. Is the Academy open on Christmas? It will be open. I think we do not have a early set Christmas Day, and we don't have a late set Christmas Eve. Gotcha. That's typical how it is. But that week schedule is just being ironed out, I believe, as we speak, and um, should be being published. Um, and that's that's a fun thing is that um, Hannah was able to um, work out the finer points of some of these schedules. So tickets will be on sale for the entire month. Um, right, you know, in just a few days. Yeah, we haven't mentioned it maybe for the last episode or so, but online ticketing is in full swing and yeah. and up and running, and it's super cool that people can have people that maybe don't live um, two blocks away in the neighborhood, like myself, can have the can plan ahead further and make sure that yeah. they have tickets to these shows, like you said, with Hateful Eight. Maybe if there's fewer screenings, more likely to to sell out and it's just nice to be able to buy tickets in advance and not have to worry about it. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, this podcast is going to be available on uh, all your major podcast uh, subscription services. So uh, please uh, subscribe, uh, follow us on uh, Spotify. There's Apple Podcasts, Substack. Is there any other big ones that people, those are the like three that I tell people. Yeah. It just, I, I think a lot of people rely on whatever is built into their device. But yeah, totally. You, it, it, whatever platform you do use, like Spotify and Apple, you can like leave a little star rating um, that might that might yeah. bump up the podcast and listing. So that's really cool if you can just like rate the podcast or, or do anything like that. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. And get excited for another month of revival programming. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs>